Good morning. I wonder if you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 4 as we continue our informal series in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 26. And I've titled the message, The Boat Trip Exam, because our passage contains the famous miracle of the stilling of the storm. But we've got a couple of parables to get to before that. Everyone has taken, I'm sure, a final exam. And if you haven't taken a final exam before, if you haven't taken an exam before, you will. <laughs> it's something near and dear to my heart as a professor. I just love giving exams. Well, grading is another matter, but uh, we go through exams constantly, don't we? Um, do you know, if you're just auditing a course, you don't have to take the exams. I took a course once in Homeric Greek. Okay, this is, uh, you know, Isaiah's time in Greek. I took a course in Homeric Greek at the University of Texas at Austin. And uh, it was one of those courses that met Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You know those ones. They meet for, uh, three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I, I show up on Monday, and there are nine people in the classroom. And the professor comes in, he introduces the course, and he says, you've got to get this, uh, um, this edition of Homer's uh, Odyssey in Greek. And he goes on and on. And, and as I look around the room, I, I start to realize that there are several people who did not know that this course was going to be reading Homer's Odyssey in Greek. Uh, that I guess they just signed up for the course. They're thinking, oh, yeah, Homer's Odyssey, this will be easy. We'll just read it in translation and, you know. Wednesday comes around, and there's two of us <laughs> in the class. And, you know, so, of course, since my companion is the only other person in the, in the room, I turn to him and say, hey, I'm Will, nice to meet you. And he turns to me, he, he, in the course of conversation, before the professor arrived, he turned to me and he said, I'm just auditing this course. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, you know, he came for a few more class periods, and then it was just me and the prof. <laughs> Every day was an exam, because I had to be ready to translate. There was one time I showed up not ready, only once. <laughs> he made me sight translate a passage that I hadn't seen before. He said, oh, you're not prepared, eh? Well, I'll uh, have you translate something I haven't seen either. Uh, I'll never forget the passage, too, is Odysseus reflecting on all the storms of life he'd been through. Uh, you know, so in the Christian life, there aren't any auditors. You will have to go through exams. Now, this fits with what the passage is talking about. As Jesus taught, uh, <clears throat> he was teaching the crowds in parables, and his own disciples were getting the, the explanation in private. And you recall the parable of the sower emphasized, the parable of the soils, as we called it, emphasized how important it is to listen well. You remember the points from last week? Ah, here's your exam. Here. Remember you were supposed to remove the rocks and pull the weeds and allow the soil to, to be prepared to receive the word. And the more prepared you are, the more crop you will get. The more understanding you get, the more understanding you will continue to get. That's what the parable of the soils was about. Now we've got two more parables about the kingdom here. And they're both seed parables. And this is why I had uh, 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 Alex read Isaiah 55 to you. Uh, seed for the sower and bread for the eater. And the fact that God's word does not return void, as the King James would have it. God's word does not 
fail in the purpose for which God sent it. So let's continue in verse 26. He was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. He's not quite like the other guy who just kind of willy-nilly threw his seed all over the place. <laughs> he goes to bed at night, verse 27, and he gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How, he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. See, this automatic process that we see happening uh, <clears throat> emphasizes the fact that we don't know what God's purpose is a lot of the time. I mean, God has revealed His purpose for human history. He's revealed uh, that He is going to do what He said He's going to do. But sometimes we don't know how He's going to do what He's going to do. And this parable of the seed emphasizes the fact that God's Word is going to do what God has planned for it to do. God is going to accomplish His purpose. We don't know how. That's the automatic part of that process, that natural part of the process. The guy plants the seed, he doesn't know how it works. He just plants the seed and then eventually he gets a crop. Just like you and I, most of us in this room probably don't know how our car engine works. We just get in and turn the key, don't we? And thank God when it does work, you know, we, we only notice when it's not working, right? You turn the key and it's not working and go, hey, gee, I don't, I don't know how this works, but I guess I'm supposed to open the hood. You know, this is what we do. We go, we go and we open the hood and we look in there and go, hey, there's an engine. Uh, but we don't know how it works. It works automatically, unless it doesn't work. Uh, but, but that's the, the picture here is that God's Word is working automatically behind the scenes. Now, right now, you see, Jesus is on the scene and things are going a certain way for him and it doesn't look like the kingdom of God is coming about. I mean, he hasn't pulled out, he hasn't put on armor or pulled out a sword. He's not driving the Romans off just yet. And this is what his original, Mark's original band here of disciples would have been thinking. And this is what the early church might have been thinking, gee, you know, it doesn't look like we're making much of an impact. But the parable emphasizes the idea that God is going to do what He said He's going to do. We move on to another parable that illustrates the kingdom of God. The first parable was the parable of the, so the sower and the seed and the soil. The second parable in, this, in Mark chapter 4 was parable of the seed is something that naturally bears fruit. And then another parable immediately follows. He asks this question, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is grown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. And you're saying, what does that mean? What does that parable mean? This parable is emphasizing the smallness of the beginnings, the smallness of the origins of the kingdom of God in history. An insignificant person appears on the scene, or is he? <laughs> See, we don't recognize who he is when Jesus appears on the scene. Isaiah uh, 53 speaks of him as not even putting out a, a, a smoldering wick. He had no form or stately majesty that we should recognize him immediately. God is emphasizing how insignificant the kingdom of God appears right now uh, in this small band of ill-trained disciples, <laughs> men who uh, 
hadn't received the most formal of, of uh, education, and yet they're about to go through a final exam on the water. And Jesus is just this ordinary guy, or so you might think, going around Galilee, performing miracles, speaking in parables, and it all seems like, well, not quite what you would expect, is it? I don't know if you noticed, at the end of this parable, he says that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. I'm going to come back to that in just a second, but I wanted to mention something that uh, this often gets, this often gets br uh, brought up. Smart Alex will do this to you. <clears throat> That's not my phone, by the way. Um, Smart Alex will do this to you. They'll say, hey, you know, there's errors in the Bible. And you say, oh, yeah, show me one. And they'll, they'll, they might point to this passage. So if, if you've got smart aleck friends, take notes here. It says, it's, a, it's like a mustard seed, which so, when it's sown upon the soil is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil. And, you know, a mustard seed's really small. I mean, uh, by one measure, you could, you could get 700 of them, and that wouldn't make up one gram. Okay, a, a, a nickel is about two grams in weight, so you know, 700, these small, tiny little seeds. And, and some people say, well, there are smaller seeds than that, you know, and they'll point to orchids or something silly like that. And, and you, you have to ask, now, did people in uh, Palestine know about those orchids? <laughs> well, I got my own stupid little question to ask back to that, <laughs> right? So, so, like, so your, your point is, no, but uh, there's also something else here. Um, I've been, uh, I, I teach a course called Intermediate Greek, and one of the things that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, do you remember this? We, a, couple of, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about what's called the superlative use of the adjective. Uh, you know, you know what a superlative is, right? There's, there's big, bigger, biggest, big, bigger, biggest. Big is positive, bigger is comparative, and biggest is superlative, right? Just like when, when, when we say to our wives, you're the most beautiful woman in the world, right? Uh, you know, if, the, if your wife stopped to think about that, what are, you, are you saying to me that you've looked at every other woman in the world? And no, 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 no. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, you see how this works? So when you say you're the most beautiful woman in the world, what you're really saying is you're extremely beautiful, right? Because there, there's, there's really no comparison. <laughs> that's how you rescue yourself from that, guys. Okay. Okay, so that's how this smaller than all the seeds is being used. It's a really little seed. And, and back in Jesus' day, they didn't say tiny, tiny seed. They said the smallest seed. So Jesus is not claiming that the mustard seed is the smallest of any seed you would ever find anywhere in the world. Okay? He could have told us that, but, you know, that would be kind of beside the point. They'd be going, what's an orchid? Right? See, people, people in, his, in his periphery would have been going, we don't know what you're talking about. But Jesus always tried to make what he said clear. Okay? He always made, uh, sorry, I, can't, I shouldn't say tried to make it clear. He made it clear. Some people just didn't understand it. So when he says it's smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, and it's sown, it grows up, becomes larger than all the garden plants, well, the mustard seed plant, you know, maybe three, four meters tall, about 12 feet tall, uh, some of the bigger ones, okay? Not every mustard plant is, is that size. But again, it's a parable, <laughs> okay? You know, remember the context. It's a parable, okay? So when he mentions this plant growing up and forming large branches so that the birds of the air will nest under its shade, he's actually doing something else here. You notice that uh, if your uh, Bible points out to you uh, Old Testament quotations or allusions, 
An allusion is a, a, is a, a, a mention of an Old Testament text that's not an exact quotation, but it's got enough of an echo that you would recognize it. This one is marked by the New American Standard as a quotation. The birds of the air can nest under its shade. And so then you have to ask yourself, hmm, what Old Testament passage is he referring to? And he actually could be referring to several Old Testament passages because there are several Old Testament passages that do this sort of thing. One of them is uh, Ezekiel 17, verse 23. Another is uh, Ezekiel 31, verse 6. And both of those are, in Ezekiel, uh, cedar tree parables. And the mention of the cedar tree with branches that the birds are able to nest in is given in the context of uh, a comparison between trees and nations. And so what's happening here is in Ezekiel is that Ezekiel is using the cedar tree as a parable for a nation. He's saying there are trees in the forest. And uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, Assyria and Babylon show up in those, in those kind of contexts. But I think even more so than the Ezekiel passage, we're probably looking here at Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You remember Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who came in and took Daniel and his, and his friends into exile uh, in uh, 605 B.C.? Okay, he actually came back another couple of times. 605, 597, and then 586 when he destroyed Solomon's temple. But when, when Babylon came and took the Israelite people into exile, or at least the nobles of, of Israel, into exile, Daniel was there when Nebuchadnezzar had various dreams. You remember those dreams from chapter 2 and chapter 7? Chapter 2 is the, the statue dream with a head with gold and the feet of, uh, of clay and precious metals in between. You remember what those stand for? The head of gold is Babylon and, the, and the, the chest is the next empire, Persia, and then the next empire, Greece, and then the legs of iron are, are Rome. And then the feet of clay mixed with iron, well, what is that? That's the revived Roman Empire. There's ten ten toes there. There's ten nations. In the, well, oh, wait a minute. There's more than... Okay, don't try to figure it all out right now. Okay, I don't want to get you distracted here. But in chapter 7, he has a, another dream in which the same sequence of empires is given and they're all beasts. Remember those? All these beasts show up. You know, there's a bear and a lion and some other stuff going on there. And then who shows up? The Son of Man shows up. So all of these, now think about this too. You may not have noticed this, but chapter 2 in Daniel is in wow. Aramaic. You know, you know that the passage where it says, they said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever? That's where it switches to Aramaic, and then you get subtitles the rest of the way, right? Because you can't read. I can't read Aramaic. Um, and then by chapter 7, we've switched back to Hebrew. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of like that, the Hunt for Red October. Remember the opening sequences of Hunt for Red October? They're all speaking, you know, Sean Connery is speaking perfect Russian, and then suddenly he's speaking English. I was like, what happened? Well, okay, that's, that's a film, but you see what I mean is Daniel switches back and forth between Aramaic and, and Hebrew, and in chapter 2, it's looking at things from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view. The, the world empire is this great statue. When we switch back to Hebrew, we're seeing Daniel's point of view. The kingdoms of the earth are just beasts running wild over the earth. And you know who it takes to, to subdue the beasts is man. Man was created to rule the world. Now, we've done a pretty lousy job of it, but it's because of sin. It's because Adam really messed up. Okay, so No, it was Eve. Didn't she mess up first? No. <laughs> We messed it up. Okay, but when, when Jesus talks about the mustard seed growing, and you remember this is about the kingdom of God, right? This is the kingdom that replaces all of those beastly empires. 
Would a British person say those beastly empires? Well, they couldn't say be that beastly empire because they'd be talking about their own, but those beastly empires are replaced by the kingdom of God that's ruled by the Son of Man. So finally, we find in the Son of Man who Adam was supposed to have been the perfect ruler of the world. And that's what he's alluding to here because he says the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and in the dream there's a tree. And the tree is really big, it's large, it's got shade, and the birds of the air come nest in its branches. Ha, ah, that's Babylon, you see, worldwide empire. Babylon, the other birds of the other nations perhaps as they enjoy the shade that they provide. This is Babylonian propaganda, if you will, you know. Okay, but then the, then the dream changes, doesn't it? because the voice from heaven says, cut down the tree, leave the stump. That was Nebuchadnezzar's period of, of uh, well, beastliness himself. You, remember, you recall that he had a brief period of, of insanity in which he acted like a beast. And so when Jesus brings this up, what's he doing? He's saying the kingdom of God is going to surpass all of those other kingdoms that you'd find in the Old Testament. All these beastly empires, even Babylon the Great, can't hold a candle to the kingdom of God. But right now, it's a mustard seed. <laughs> right now, in the present experience of the disciples and the present experience of the church who's reading this, is... Hey, we look pretty small. I mean, doesn't look like a worldwide empire to me. I mean, it just looks like a bunch of fishermen from Galilee. You know, what kind of, what kind of uh, army is that, you'd say? See, Daniel 4, 12, its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. And so our parables are talking about the beginnings of the kingdom of God and how God's doing the work behind the scenes to bring about what He said He would do. And He's doing it from what from human standpoint looks like an insignificant beginning. But He says, trust me, you ain't seen nothing yet. Okay? That's my paraphrase of a lot of Scripture. Now, verses 33 and 34 kind of round off this first bit about parables that we see in the Gospel of Mark. He says, With many such parables he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. Remember, people on the outside are getting, getting things in parables. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his disciples. So there's an exam for people on the outside. Did you understand the parable? Uh, yeah, yeah, there was a beautiful picture of seed and soil, and gee, I don't know what that was about. You failed. <laughs> you didn't understand it. Okay? And the disciples get a different exam because they've got advanced information, right? And he says, don't you understand the parables? And they say, yeah, there was the seed and the soil and the... I don't know. What? <laughs> That's what... I, now, I, you know, I'm not making this up. This is what the disciples are doing all along. In the Greek, it really says, huh? <laughs> That's, the way, That's the way Mark is picturing them. Huh? What? What? Beware of the, the, the yeast of the Pharisees. Oh, we didn't bring any bread. Oh, come on, guys. And so, really, you know what we've got here is Mark is telling us through explaining the parables to us that Jesus has been teaching them, and he's a master teacher. There's a lot of puns in there, but anyway. He's, a, he's a, an absolutely fabulous teacher. I wish I could teach like him. 
And they've been getting the private explanation of all of these parables. You know what's interesting though is Mark doesn't let us in on exactly what those private conversations were. You know, we're going, hey, come on, Mark, tell us more. And he says, I've only got 32 feet of papyrus. I'm not telling you. Okay. Actually, his is probably like 28 feet of papyrus. You know, it ends with, they were afraid. You know, Mark, where's the rest of it? He says, that is the rest of it. But what Mark is showing us as the reader of Mark is, these guys have inside information about the kingdom of God, about the mystery. Remember back in verses 11 and 12, he mentions the mystery of the kingdom. That's another Danielic reference. And they've got what they need to know to be able to trust in the king of the coming kingdom. And that's really what this is about, is the kingdom. At the end of the passage, they ask the question, who then is this? In verse 41, their, their response to the boat trip exam is, who is this guy? It's like, wait a minute, you've been, like, you've been with him in private all this time and you still don't know who he is? Yeah, in the Greek it says, huh? See, Mark is trying to get you as the reader to answer that question too. And he started by hitting you over the head. 1-1, one, one, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the voice at the baptism of Jesus says, this is my son. The voice at the transfiguration from heaven says, this is my son. Even the Roman centurion who's in charge of the crucifixion says, surely this man was the son of God. So you, the reader, are supposed to go, oh, he must be the Son of God. Wow. <laughs> How about that? But Jesus is the King of the coming kingdom. You see what these parables are about? is about the growth of the kingdom in unexpected ways, in ways that defy human expectation. Very much real, very much behind the scenes. He's the already present King. You see, in the Gospel of Mark, it's always the kingdom of God. It's never just the kingdom. It's always the kingdom of God. And actually, when Jesus appears in Mark for the first time, the first thing he says is about the kingdom. He says, repent and believe in the gospel because the kingdom has come near. That's chapter 1, verse 15. And so if you want to define the kingdom, you've got to talk about the king. Really, he's the key to it. And it doesn't operate the way earthly kingdoms do. Now, we, if, you would, if you just go in Mark and you think about, well, where else does the word kingdom appear? Well, in chapter 6, verse 23, Herod makes this, remember we talked about this last week, he makes this rash promise to his stepdaughter. You know, kind of strange... Uh, soap opera kind of life that these guys lead. And he, he says, up to half of my kingdom I'll give to you. This is Herod Antipas, right? One of Herod the Great's descendants. Very complex family tree there too. <laughs> but you know what's so funny is, he's saying up to half of my kingdom. And you as the reader are going, your kingdom? What are you talking about? You aren't even in control of your kingdom, Antipas. Rome's in control. You can't even sneeze without asking the Romans for permission. <laughs> Half of my kingdom. You know, isn't that funny how people are just so out of touch with reality, they don't re recognize really what's going on. And in a human kingdom, very few people have a direct relationship with the king. You know, an average person, hey, I'd like to talk to Herod Antipas, please. You'd probably get a spear in the chest if you said that. Um, but in the kingdom of God, all of us have a direct relationship with the king. Isn't that wonderful? And the kingdom of God really is the context and reason for what you experience daily and what God is doing in his overall purpose for history is part of your story as well. Your story is woven into this. So when you encounter storms on the sea of your life, 
you know that what God is doing is bringing about His purpose for what He's doing in you. In you. And so, verse, verses uh, uh, 35 to 41 bring us into the actual story of the stilling of the storm. Verses 35 and 36 are the context, the setup for, for the actual story of the storm. And then we've got a couple of reactions at the end. In verse 40, the disciples will respond and then Jesus will respond. And on that day, when evening came, you remember he'd been teaching from the boat so that the crowds wouldn't crowd in on him. He says, on that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. So here's Jesus announcing his intention. Here's the plan of God for us right now. Let's go over to the other side. It's not, hey, let's go out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee, get in a storm and sink the boat. Okay, now you've got to remember that. Now, I'm going to spoil the plot here. You ready? You ready? Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, they came to the other side. Uh, sorry, did I ruin it for you? Okay, I, I know I've removed all the suspense, but you see what I mean is what, what's about to happen actually is a living parable. Okay? Now, I'm not saying, please don't, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying Mark made this story up because it sounded cute. Okay? What I'm saying is Jesus orchestrated these events. You know, being the creator of the world, he can do this kind of thing. Jesus orchestrated this situation, a real storm with real danger, a real problem to put the disciples to the test. He says, let us go to the other side. So this is the plan of God moving forward like the seed parables. We don't know how it's going to happen, but we know that it is. Now, they're right here at the Sea of Galilee. They're probably in the area of Capernaum or uh, Capernaum. And Jesus' goal is on the other side, the kind of, uh, what is that, the eastern shore, uh, Gergasa. We find where they, where they arrive there, where, where the demoniac is on the other side. Uh, Mark identifies it as Gergasa. Now, the Sea of Galilee is about maybe 33 miles of shoreline around, you know, so it's, it's, not, a, it's not a pond, okay? So you, they've got a, a fairly sizable way to go. This is uh, the Sea of Galilee from, from the north here. I knew I, I would eventually use all of my pictures one day. See how calm the water, water looks there. They've actually, uh, they actually found at Gennesaret, what's now, uh, it's got a different name in the modern world, but uh, down kind of south and west of Capernaum at uh, what, what used to be called Gennesaret in the, in the ancient world, they actually found a boat uh, very similar to the ones that, that would have been used in the first century. Now, there's no, uh, there's no connection to Jesus with this boat. You know, it's not like they found a bracelet in there that said, what would I do? Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, there's not, you know, this boat belongs to Peter or something like that. But, but uh, here, here's what it looked like before the body shop got hold of it. Um, uh, this is a reconstruction of, of what this boat would have looked like. So, you know, pretty small boat. Okay. Uh, and to me, that looks like a big boat. But I, I, when I learned to sail, it was with a, with a sunfish. You know, one of those, like, if you get someone else on the boat, it'll probably tip over. Uh, so I'm thinking small boat. So this, you know, it's still fairly small by by comparison, and there isn't a motor on there either. So leaving the crowd, verse 36, they took him along with them in the boat just as he was, and the other boats were with him. Now, you can uh, you can pretty well tell Jesus is probably worn out from having taught all day. We got a sample of what he was teaching, but we didn't get everything of what he taught that day. And there's the setup. Now, I want you to see, I want you to know, we're going to read through the story of the storm, and I want you to, I want you to count how many verses it is. Okay. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, 
Hush. Be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. How many verses was that? Three verses. That was quick. Did that show you something? That's not a big problem, is it? You see how quickly it's, it's over with? And you're reading in the Greek, it says, it says, a great storm. And then the last words of verse 39 are, a great calm. Like, wow, what happened in between? That went fast. Let, let's reread that. You know, hey, you, you, know, you can imagine the early church in Rome meeting to read this. Hey, could you, could you read that again? I, I missed it. But, you know, you're thinking about what the, uh, uh, what the, uh, the early audience of Mark is thinking. And if you've read the Bible, and I, and I trust that you have read the Bible. If you haven't read the Bible, you need to read the Bible. But what, what did that story remind you of? Let's see. The prophet asleep in a boat on, on a sea where there's a storm. Does it sound a lot like Jonah, maybe? Yeah, I know. You weren't going to go there because, well, Jonah is fleeing from the presence of Yahweh, and, you know, he's, okay. Well, Jesus is what Jonah should have been. Yeah, you remember he says elsewhere, you know, when they, when they ask him for a sign, he says, hey, look, you're only going to get the sign of Jonah, right? Jonah was in the heart of the deep three days, three nights. You can get the resurrection. He says, someone greater than Jonah is here. Says, so Jesus is who Jonah should have been, okay? But without him fleeing to Tarshish, you know, because you have to go over land to Assyria, you wouldn't have got this nice boat story. But here it is. It's Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Um, when I teach this, <coughs> when I teach Hebrew, I do teach Hebrew, by the way. I know I was just talking about teaching Greek, but I teach Hebrew too. And it's really interesting because it's almost as though the boat here is also being personified. It's, it's the boat was considering being broken. You know, the Lord hurls the wind on the sea and the sea obeys. And the boat is thinking about breaking up, okay, being broken. Now, being broken is repentance elsewhere. And so even the boat is thinking of repenting. Even the sailors are calling out to him. The only person who's not obedient in this whole story is Jonah. Isn't that fun? And then the sailors became afraid, and each man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen and sound asleep. This has already happened before the storm hits. He's already knocked out. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. You see how the, the disciples are playing the role of the captain and Jonah at the same time? Lord, don't you care that we are perishing? Okay, yeah, then now they're in real danger. Don't, you know, don't say, uh, yeah, like Peter got wet or something and you're like, oh, we're perishing. No, you know, don't think that they're exaggerating this. There's a real danger on the Sea of Galilee. You can get these storms because of the, because the configuration of the mountains around the Sea of Galilee and because it's low, it's, it's actually below uh, sea level, uh, not as low as the Dead Sea, but it's still below sea level. You can get weather patterns that will come in and, and, and really mess you up fast. Uh, I'm glad that on the boat trip that we took when we went to Israel, everything remained calm, including the passengers. Uh, so, <clears throat> But you see, this is what you do when you don't understand what God is doing. You don't trust in the king who's right there with you in the boat. You hit the storm of life and you go, where are you, Jesus? Why don't you get up and still this storm? Don't you care? Now, the, at least they did one part of this right. They went to Jesus. 
Okay, but I think, you know, could I, could I revise the story for a moment? I think that if they had been thinking clearly, they would have said, hey, Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. Maybe we shouldn't worry about whether we're going to get there. That's interesting. Maybe they should have said to themselves, hey, he said, let's go to the other side. He didn't say, hey, let's go out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee and sink the boat. Right? Like I said earlier. Okay, so they should have said, hey, you know what? The king of the coming kingdom of God is right here in the boat with us, and he's asleep. So maybe we should not worry? Now, you and I say that from the comfort of our, well, these chairs don't have arms, but you're sitting there at home, you're reading this story with, you know, in your armchair, you're the armchair disciple, and you say, gosh, those guys, heart of heart, lack of understanding, all this, and then, then you know, as soon as, you know, you're pointing your finger at them, there's several of yours pointing back at you, you're just like this too. You hit the storm and you go, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And what you have to remember is the king of the coming kingdom is asleep in the boat with you. He says, don't worry. Now, uh, when Mark describes this scene, he says the, 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 it immediately became calm. I think he may be thinking about Psalm 107, uh, verses 29 and 30. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed, and then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. Who gets to still the raging sea in the Old Testament? It's Yahweh. Yahweh, Jehovah, if you want to be really wrong about how to pronounce the word. You say it Yahweh, I say it my way. Um, but the one thing we can be dogmatic about is it's not Jehovah. So it's Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one who led them out of Egypt, the one who appeared to, to Moses in the burning bush and said, I am. That is he who is the one who stills the storm. Now, the raging sea in the Old Testament is very often those Gentile nations. Those things that are opposed to, the, to God's people and His, and His Word. There's something else I want you to notice, though, about this story, and that is this. Notice how Jesus, it says uh, that Jesus rebuked the wind. He got up and He rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, hush, be still. That, that's how I, would, how I would do it, too. I wouldn't have him going, hush, be still. You know, I'd just have him say, hush, be still, immediately. I mean, not just the storm died down and then the waves not rocking the boat anymore. It's just immediate. Shut up. Be quiet. Where else has Jesus been rebuking things? If you go back to chapter 1, verse 25, you'll read that Jesus rebukes the demon. It's another place where Jesus rebukes the demon. And so it's almost as though Jesus is performing an exorcism on the storm. Hey, cut it out. It's like he says to the demons. And what's, what story follows this one? Well. It's an exorcism. So his response is this. You know, their response to the storm is, don't you care that we're perishing? They accuse him of doing wrong. Lord, you don't care. He says, why are you afraid? Why are you cowardly? How is it that you have no faith? That last clause translated that way in the in the New American Standard, if you've got the ESV or the NIV, you might read something like this. Uh, do you still have no faith? And I think that's actually a, a, a better reading of the text. There's a textual difficulty here, a one-word, one-letter difference. After all this time I've been with you explaining this stuff, and you still don't get it? What's wrong with you? How is it that you, st do you still have no faith? Trust me. 
where did we get there? And I was having a good nap. Wow. You see, there's a rebuke in the way he responds, isn't there? And when there's a rebuke, it's because they should have known better. Okay? Just like us. And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Same kind of response that the sailors give in Jonah. Once they've thrown Jonah overboard. See, you know, there's a diff big difference between Jonah and, and this, this story. And the, the differences are mostly because they're two different events. But also because Jesus isn't the problem. Jonah's the problem in the Jonah story. So when you throw him overboard, you don't have your problem anymore, right? That's why the sea is still after they throw him overboard. And they're asking this question, and this again goes back to that psalm. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, I want you to notice they became very much afraid. This is not the reverential awe afraid that you often find in the Bible. They were afraid. You know, fear God, that sort of thing. This is the, we're still really scared, fear. And, and I want you to notice how Mark often will say this about the disciples. Look in chapter uh, 9, verses 31 and 32. He was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man uh, will, is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they didn't understand his statement, and they were afraid to ask him. This is the same fear. They still don't understand. And Mark ends his gospel this way. He says, go tell his disciples and Peter, this is what the angel says, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And the scribes of the ancient world are going, what? That's all there is? Oh, come on. There has to be resurrection appearances. You know, you know we've got to get a whole bunch more stuff in there. So some other pious people came along and wrote some stuff in there. You probably have it in brackets in your Bible, verses 9 through 20. That's only one of the alternate endings the scribes came up with. They, they were just really bothered by this. But if you think about it, the end of the gospel and our story today in Mark 4 end almost the same way. There's this open-ended question that isn't answered. You know why? I've, I've talked about this before, how Mark is always in your face. He keeps throwing it back at you. He says, so what are you going to do with this? They didn't tell anybody. Are you going to tell somebody? How about that? Yeah, they were afraid. Ephobunto gar is what it says. You know, gar, post-positive con conjunction. Nobody ends a book with gar. What are you talking about? Well, you know... Here's the Galilee. Here's the, the, there, here there was no storm to be stilled, but it was still on the Sea of Galilee. So when, when your life's storms come, don't think that faith means the storm is going to be stilled. The stilling of the storm really is a rebuke. It's like, you woke me up for this? Okay, fine. I'll, I'll take care of your problem. There, there. Don't be afraid. But they still were. What God wants you to do is to trust Him because you have a relationship with the King of the coming kingdom that you will reach the other side. You are going to get there. God is going to accomplish His purpose for you. And we, like the disciples, we're sitting here going, wow, we don't understand. God, would you please do, do this or do that? Sometimes He calms the storm. And other times He wants you to ride through it with the confidence that He will rescue you on the other side of the lake. 
And so th that's my, my plea to you today, that you trust Jesus even when it seems that he is asleep in the back of the boat of your life. When the storm is raging and you're in trouble, call out to him. Don't accuse him of not caring. Call out to him. And he will guide you through that storm. And he might even still that storm for you. But don't think that he hasn't answered if he doesn't do it the way you're expecting because the kingdom of God is happening behind the scenes and from insignificant beginnings. It's growing like that mustard seed plant. And one day, everything will become evident. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're so very grateful that Jesus is with us in this boat of our lives. And that He is always with us, even though sometimes You aren't doing things the way we would like. Isn't it funny for us even to say that, but we do. And so we humble ourselves before You and ask that in whatever storm we are facing, you will give us strength to endure in spite of the appearances from the human standpoint. We know that you are able to carry us through the storm. Father, there are some circumstances in our lives which are insurmountable and we want them changed and we continue to ask you for change. We continue to ask you for healing. We continue to ask you for resolution. But we also ask, Father, that you would allow us to humble ourselves as we wait. We know one day when Jesus comes from heaven with a shout that we will see him as he is and you will be visibly God to all the world. We pray, Father, that we will be found faithful and that in so doing, we will pass that exam. We thank you for your grace and mercy that's new every morning. In Jesus' name, amen.